So, so if you're struggling in sin or you're struggling in some area of your life, know that God provides the strength and what you need and even the grace to get through it and to conquer it and to beat it. Sometimes it takes years. Sometimes it takes months. Sometimes it takes a lifetime. But it is a process in which all of us go through and know that you do not go through it alone. And to come into church and think no one else is struggling, you are deceived. You are. We all struggle. We all should be struggling. If you're not struggling, then you're not alive. Welcome to Refuge Podcast, a weekly Bible study for young adults at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. All right, good evening. Good to see all of you tonight. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. Tonight we are going to be finishing the book of Jonah. So, hey, 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 hey. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And God, as we come to it tonight, we pray, Lord, would you reveal more of who you are to us? Would you teach us in the power of the Holy Spirit? Uh, uh, Lord, we believe that your word is inspired. It's, it's your very words to us. And so every bit of it, every part of it, Lord, is, is written for our admonition. It's for uh, our correction. It's for our uh, a deepening of our faith in you. And so, Lord, we pray, God, that you would teach us by, by your spirit, draw out the things that you desire for us to see that we might draw close to you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Jonah, chapter 4. Um, let's just recap, okay? Jonah was meant, obviously, it's four chapters. It's meant to be read quickly. Uh, it's a short story. It's one of the most well-known short stories in the Bible. So let's just recap what we've learned, what we've gone through. Obviously, we took a little time, I think five weeks, to go through it. Uh, it's an easy read. I mean, you can, you can finish this in a day and a half. Just kidding. Uh, like 30 minutes, if you read like I do, day and a half. But let's just recap. Jonah was a prophet called by God to go to a wicked and violent people called the Ninevites to warn them of their impending doom, that if they did not turn from their ways, they would have been destroyed. Now Jonah runs in the opposite direction to board a boat going to the end of the known earth to a place called Tarshish. This is where Jonah experiences the chastening of the Lord as a violent storm comes upon him. It's so intense that the boat was beginning to be broken up or begins to break apart. But Jonah was fast asleep at the bottom of the boat. And Jonah knows it's because of him. It's his sin. It's, it's his disobedience to the Lord. And tells the sailors to throw him into the sea and the storm will cease. Reluctantly, they began to row on but decided, all right, let's throw him overboard. But it was here that the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and it was here in the belly of the fish that Jonah is going to be enrolled in the school of grace. And he comes to a place of repentance under the heavy hand of God's grace and is vomited up upon the shore. He then proceeds to walk the month-long journey to Nineveh, where he would deliver the message, 40 days, the Nineveh will be overturned. It's some like five words in the Hebrew, some epic five words there. And to our surprise, revival broke out in this unlikely city. There was mass repentance. 
The king calls for fasting and repentance. He calls for everyone to put on sackcloth, the sign of mourning and wailing. He even calls for his animals to repent, which is amazing. These sinful cows of mine. And as the chapter ends, God relents from his anger and wrath. And it's here where we are reminded that the inspired word of God is intended to reveal who God is. And through this story, we can see God is patient. He is gracious. He looks to be merciful. And that God's patience is not his approval of sin, but his loving kindness preaches to us repentance. If only the book had ended last week in chapter 3, it would be an epic feel-good story, leaving us with tingles in our tum-tums, right? <laughs> Just like, oh, how wonderful. <laughs> he turned and everyone's good. And God's like, and we sailed off into the sunset as dolphins just, eh, next to them all the way under a rainbow it would be on pure flicks no just kidding starring Kevin Sorbo <laughs> it's like the only guy in any of those Christian movies Hercules anyway but it doesn't end in chapter 3 it goes on and as you read in verse 1 it's a very interesting story. This is one of the most interesting books in the Bible because it is incredibly honest. And what's, what's really interesting about the Bible is that it paints its heroes warts and all. It doesn't just hide, like, hide the negative and hide the bad things and only bring to the forefront all the good things they did, but it brings about their failures and shows us like in great depiction their failures. It's one of the reasons we know that the Bible is authentic, because of things like this. Um, but in chapter 4, let's read verse 1 through 3. It says, remember, God relent. Let's actually let's start in verse 10, okay? Verse 10. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore, now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. This is Jonah's second prayer in the book. Like this is the second time he prays. And the Gospel of Luke tells us in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, says, For his mouth speaks from which he fills his heart. Let me read it one more time. His mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. This is the ESV version, which is extra spiritual. Um, but but maybe you've read it or memorized it in a different way. Or maybe your mom has quoted it to you. Out of the abundance of your heart... The mouth speaks, right? You've heard it said that, that way before. And from Jonah, what he says here, we get a glimpse into the condition of his heart. The fulfilled promise of God that he would uh, relent, that he would relent, Jonah found no joy in the fulfilled promise of God. 
Like when God said, if, if the people will turn, I will relent from my destruction. I will not pour out my wrath on them. That was a promise. If you do this, I will do this. They did what they, told, they were told to do. They repented. They, they turned from their wickedness. And God fulfilled his word. Which every Christian would say, yes and amen. Like we love the promises of God. We love when God fulfills his word. It reminds us of his faithfulness. It reminds us of his power and what God can do. But for Jonah, he found no such joy in the promise of God. In the fulfilled word of God. Instead, he saw it as evil. The Hebrew word for displeased. It is the word which can also mean evil. It is is the word, or the root of that word is to be evil or shatter or to break apart. Jonah saw this act of mercy from God as evil and wrong. So much so that it caused him to burn with anger. So angry that he says it would be better for me to die. That's how angry he is. But I think one encouraging point from the book of Jonah that we could take away, there's not many, but the one that we could take away is this. Jonah is not perfect, right? And everyone said, hallelujah. He's a prophet of God, used by God, spoken to you by God. But also, God is so committed to restore Jonah. And I think that's something we can all rejoice in. It's not only that that Jonah's not a perfect person, and God doesn't call us in the sense that he called us to be with him because we're perfect people. But God has called us to be with him as God rejuvenates and restores and pulls the flesh from us to make us a new creation. And God is committed to that process. God, God does not grow weary in the process of you becoming more like Jesus. God is committed to the restoration of Jonah and God is committed to your restoration as well. To bring you further than you've been before. But what does his word and what are the things that he say reveal? After all, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. First of all, he quotes Exodus 34 back at God. But he doesn't use it in a complimentary way, but rather uses it as an insult. (laughs) So God told the people, like, this is who I am. I am merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. That's a direct, like, quotation from Exodus chapter 34 where God reveals himself to the nation of Israel there on Mount Sinai hands them the law I mean it's this epic storm crazy display of God's power and existence and he says this is who I am and Jonah says I know that you're like this and I don't like this about you interesting he knew this about God but it reveals the idol that was in Jonah's own heart Idolatry is not just the worship of an image, a statue, or a false deity, but it is at the core of it, and we learned about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, at the core of it, essentially, it is changing God. That's what idolatry is. It's changing God. Something that, about God that I don't like, I change it. I make it what I want it to be. That's idolatry. You're worshiping a false god. And in this sense, Jonah had done the same thing. He was worshiping or idolizing a false god. He had a god of his own making. There were certain parts of God's attributes and God's character that he didn't like, and so in his mind he changed them. I don't like this about God. Idolatry also is exchanging God's way for our own. That is idolatry. 
to worship an ideology or, or, or worship a way or to exchange God's instruction for our own. And you're saying, like, how do we get on idolatry? Where does this come from? Turn to chapter 2, verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8. Listen to the words of Jonah in his prayer, his first prayer. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. In chapter 2, verse 8, he makes a heavy distinction between himself and those other people. Look what he goes on to say in verse 9. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving, and I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. It reminds me of what Peter told Jesus after he, he told, um, Jesus told Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter says, listen, <laughs> it's, so, it's so funny that you bring that up, because I would never do that. Um, <laughs> you're probably really tired from all the fasting and stuff. Maybe you should eat something. He didn't say that's my version. But he, he like pulls Jesus aside. He's like, you're not going to go to the cross. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And all, there's all this discourse. But remember that Jesus says, you will all leave me. And Peter says, I will never leave you. All of these other guys, look at them. Look at these losers. They all might leave you, but I will never leave you. And Jesus says, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. He says, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. The idol that Jonah had is the same idol that Peter had, and it is self-righteousness. What is revealed in the words of Jonah is an idol of self-righteousness, right? Those who regard worthless idols, they forsake their own mercy. And if you flip that and look at what, what Jonah is calling for, right? Those who worship idols, they forsake and forget about mercy. What is Jonah doing? He is calling down God's fire to destroy these people. Forget mercy. Kill them all. Burn them all. In fact, I'm going to sit here on this hill and watch. I will watch them burn. Why? Because he was worshiping idols. There was an idol in his own heart, the idol of self-righteousness. We made this connection earlier in the study in this book as well to the, to the parable of the prodigal sons. Remember in the, in the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, there's a son who tells his dad, I want my inheritance now. I wish you were dead so that I could have all my money now, so why don't we just do that? And uh, I want to go live. I want to go do what I want. You guys know the story. He lives, spends all his money on prostitutes and booze and, and eventually ends up penniless, living in a pig, uh, pigsty, starving to death and says, like, what am I doing? I need to go home. Maybe he'll let me be a servant in his house. And so he goes back to his dad's house. And you guys remember the story. The father runs to him, throws his arms around him, puts, puts a robe upon his shoulders. He puts sandals on his feet, a ring on his finger. And he says, my son who was dead is now alive. My son who was lost is now home. Kill the fatted calf. Let's party. We're going to celebrate. Right? And we often like read that story and we're like, oh, that's a, ah. There's a second brother in that story. You remember the, the other brother was out in the field working, and he comes back, and he hears this party going on, and he's like, what's happening? And the father's like, come, your brother, remember he, was, he left, and now he's back, and we're going to celebrate. And the brother begins to talk to the dad, and he says, I have done nothing but give honor to your name. I have been faithful to work for you. I have never wished that you were dead. I've never asked for my inheritance, and you have never, ever 
thrown a party for me like this. My brother who spent all of your money and then comes back and says, sorry, and you throw him a party. He's like, I can't believe you would do this. But I have been faithful. Don't I deserve this, right? So we have a story of prodigal living in that sense, and we have a prodigal in the sense that self-righteousness distances you from God. Thinking that you deserve something other than what God has given to you. Or that you've worked your way up. Or somehow you've earned what God has given to us in the sense of grace and salvation. But Jesus told that story to show Israel to itself. Right? They, they were, God, they said to him, God, we are your people. We've kept your statutes. We've kept your law. Heal us. Restore us. Prosper us. But the Gentiles, they're dogs. Like, judge them. Cast them out. Salvation for them? you got to be crazy. They're evil. They're wicked. They're not of your chosen people. The things that they do, the things that they talk about, the gods that they worship, the things that they eat, we don't do any of those things. We're much more savable than those. But the sin of self-righteousness, it places ourselves in the seat of judge. And Jonah says, Nineveh was so evil, it's not worthy of being forgiven. It's not worthy of being forgiven. God burn it. In fact, he says, I knew you wouldn't punish them, and that is the reason I ran away. Like, I knew you'd be gracious. I knew you'd be merciful. And that is exactly why I didn't go tell them. Mic drop, ice drop. And here's what he says next. The fact that you wouldn't do that, that's the reason I ran, and that is not okay with me. It's not okay with me. It's interesting that God would even care. <laughs> like, why does Jonah's opinion matter? Isn't it interesting with social media that we all think that our opinion matters? <laughs> like, no one cares. Like, I, I don't care about your opinion, nor, nor should you care about mine. So you're like, do you like my outfit? I'm like, mm, I don't know. Who cares? Why would you care? Look at my outfit. Do I have any room to talk? No. This whole thing with the Olympics and everyone's just trashing these Olympians from their couch have done nothing, have done nothing. Like they're just laying on a couch and they're like, I can't believe she dropped out of the competition. And you're like, you've done nothing. Why does your opinion matter from Eastvale, North Dakota? No one cares. You have no room to talk, right? Isn't it the same thing with Jonah's opinion right here? God, I knew you would do this. And that's why I ran. You're wrong. And God's like, I don't care about your opinion because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And it's so often, man, we get caught. Uh, we're going to stop talking about social media. It's so dumb. Like, why does everyone's, everyone think they're, everyone says they're like, oh, I'm an expert on COVID. No, you're not. Like, you don't know. I'm an expert on this. I'm an expert. No, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. Be quiet. <laughs> just be quiet. You know what would happen if we all just stopped? It'd be, oh, world peace. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Anywho, Jonah, Jonah's opinion didn't matter. But yet here's God patiently listening to the ranting of a crazy prophet. Self-righteousness often sees others unworthy of forgiveness and mercy, all the while forgetting that we aren't either. 
Something happens to us in our Christian walk when we get saved, we come to this realization, God, your grace is so good, I don't deserve your salvation. And we, there, we go through this process of struggling. I don't know if you went through that process, but I did. Am I really saved by grace? Or do I have to do something? Is there a class I need to take? How many times do I got to get baptized? Like, is, is there a process that I need to go through to like really solidify this whole thing? But it's really by the grace of God, right? And at some point, we can slip into self-righteousness and think, well, I go to church, I read my Bible, I um, give to the poor, I tithe, I also serve in children's ministry, so there's like four points right there. Um, I, whatever, I share a room with my sister and I give her the top bunk, or you know, whatever, is dumb, like, you know, I, I, I'm selfless, I'm this, I'm that. Do you know that any good that comes from you is because of the grace of God in your life? That you wouldn't be able to do those things had God not saved you. But somehow we get in this trap to think that that is how we stand before God. is because I do all of these things. Listen, we are saved purely by the grace of God. None of us are worthy of it. None of us are worthy of it. In Psalm 73, if you want to turn there, you can. I'm going to read a few of these verses, so just stick with me. It might be long, but it makes sense when you read it all together. So, Psalm 73, it's a great psalm. It says this, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, listen to this part, my feet had almost stumbled my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. That's cool. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues walks through the earth. Therefore, this people returned here and waters of full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease they increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have been in true, untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. And you're like, why did we just read that? Notice what the psalmist says. As I looked around, he says, what benefit was it for me to live righteously? He started to envy those people who did not know God and did whatever they want, and it actually prospered them. And he's like, how, how are these wicked people making money? And like, I look at their life, and they have joy, and they're like having fun. And they're just doing all these, he says pride serves as a necklace around their neck. Like it's, a, it's something to boast of is how prideful they are. 
He, he says, this is all of a sudden, all this plagued me. And he said, I love the last part. It's so, it's so drunk, like so much drama. Surely I've cleansed my heart in vain. And I washed my hands in innocence for all day long, right? All day long. I have, and I've always done this, and I've always done that, right? He's having this enormous pity party. Like, all the wicked get to do whatever they want, and here I am living righteously, and I'm suffering because of it. <laughs> he comes to his senses, and he says, until I went into the house of God, into his sanctuary, I could only go in there because of God's presence and because he allowed me to come in. And I remembered their end. He says, I'm saved. My end is not theirs. And so often, guys, self-righteousness, like he said in the beginning, I almost stumbled when I got my eyes on those things. And I kept, I kept looking to that instead of remembering that I'm saved by the grace of God. So heaven is my end. Self-righteousness causes us to slip. And it can cause us to slip far from the grace of God. In verse 4, he says this, Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? The Lord doesn't say much, but he just so softly like, asks him this really like, pointing question right into his chest. Is it right for you to be angry? Like, Jonah, let's sit down. Like a, like a father just, um, I have a five-year-old son and a ten-year-old son. And how I deal with them is very different right now. My five-year-old is nuts. So it's like, stop, don't do that. I don't have to explain much to him. Like what I say goes, just do what I say and you shall live, right? But, but my 10-year-old, where I'm like, hey, I ask him to do, and he'll have these real questions of like, why? Why me? That's always his, like, why do you ask me to do everything? Why do you, it's such a firstborn thing, right? Like, please, son. And it's like, my son's biting me on the leg and my daughter's running around naked. And I'm like, please, just go do what I ask you to do. Please. He's like, why me? Why me? Oh, woe is me. And I'm like, you have food and a place to live. I'm barely surviving here. But sometimes I have to sit down with them and, and I'm like, is it right? Like the way that you treated them? And just ask him this question, like, do you think it's okay? Or ask him this question a lot. Why did you think that that was okay? Have I ever given you indication that that would be okay to do? Right? And the same thing with the Lord. Just as a loving father, and, you know, I'm not, like, freaking out. My house is fine. Everything's cool. My kids are great. Okay? But there are times where I have to sit with my son and explain to him, like, hey, do you? Put my arm around him. Is that the right thing to do? Let's think about this for a second. And I think that's what God is doing to Jonah. Just lovingly putting his arm around him and like, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about this? Let's think through this for a second. Is it right? But what does Jonah's anger reveal in his own heart? Because anger reveals something. Anger is an emotion. Um, girls... Have emotions, guys have emotion. It's anger, right? When you're sad, you're angry. When you're tired, you're angry. When you're hungry, you're angry. Uh, like, we, we have no other emotion. Underneath anger is all these other underlying emotions. I'm gonna write a book about this. I really, I feel like God's giving me vision on this for sure. Just as I've been like realizing that I have one emotion in my life, and that is 
anger. But underneath anger is so many other things of like hurt, kind of like, anyway. Um, Jonah's anger reveals something. Not only that he has a theological issue with God, but that he, and that he had a wrong view of God, but it reveals a heart issue in his own heart. And that is what God is after and committed to restore and to change. That's why he asks him, let's talk about why you're angry, because anger is not the emotion you should have right now. Any pastor who goes to preach and people are like turning their life over to the Lord, the last response you would assume they would have would be like, I can't believe this! And like losing their mind, like, oh no! Why God? Woe is me! <laughs> Maybe just my reaction would be that way, sorry. It seems a little dull in here tonight, it's going to get loud. So, what is going on? God is committed to restore this part of his heart. His anger has to do with what is at his center. Meaning, what his mission and goal and passion is has changed. It is not God right now. At this moment, God is no longer at the center of his heart. And you may think, eh, that's a bit of a stretch. Like, how could you make that assumption? I don't know, it doesn't say that. Where do you find that? No. When you say, God, unless you do what I want you to do, I might as well stop living, and I'm fine with being separated from you, something is wrong with your heart, and God's not at the center, right? Jonah reminds me of a dog who's guarding something, and the closer that God's hand gets to it, the louder he growls and the more he shows his teeth. Like, God is reaching in, he's like, is it right for you to be angry? We need to talk about this. And Jonah's growling his teeth. And he's like, you better not. You better not. We're not going to go there. And he just begins to enrage him even more. And he says, you know what? Just let me die and be separated from you. Doesn't even matter. Don't really expect this kind of behavior from a prophet of God. I'm sure Micah never did this. No, I'm just kidding. But something happens. And God is committed to this restoration, so God then prepares a few things for him. This is where it connects. Listen, God had prepared what? A fish. It said that, that very sentence, and God prepared a fish. Here in these, in these verses through the end, it'll say that God prepared a plant in verse 6. It'll say that God prepared a worm in verse 7. That's right, a worm. And in verse 8, a wind. God prepared these things. And, and when Jonah set out to run and he was on his way, God's like, oh man, this is going to hurt my boy. But he needs it. All this was prepared. All of this was prepared. Jonah, you're going to need this and you're going to need this and you're going to need this. I am prepared to do the work. Are you? Like God is ready to make us into the image of Jesus and to make us more like him. Are you willing to yield to that work in your life? God has things prepared for us. Good works that we should walk in them. Are you ready like to hear from God and receive that stuff? Here's what he says in verse five. Um, uh, so Jonah went out to the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what God, uh, what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. <laughs> Thanks, God. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm 
and it so damaged the plant that it was withered. And it happened when the sun rose that God prepared a vehement east wind. Vehement? Vehement. Vehement. And the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he drew or so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Remember what he said earlier that this book reveals something about God, right? That's the purpose of it. It's, it's teaching us something about God. And one of those attributes that Jonah teaches us from this book is that God is incredibly patient. God is super, super patient. Aren't you glad tonight that God is patient with you? And he deals with you kindly. God was patient with Jonah when he ran. He was there when he boarded the boat. He was there when he sank into the deep. He was there when he was in the belly of the fish. And here again, God is speaking to Jonah in patience and in kindness. Even in his self-righteousness and self-centeredness and pride, God is patient. And aren't you glad that God is patient? Psalm 86, verse 15, says, But you, O Lord, are God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. Psalm 103, verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Psalm 145, verse 8, the Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. God's patience is not his approval of what we're doing, but his patience is to make us more like Jesus because we all still need to grow. All of us need to grow in our walk with God. And the growth pattern of the Christian is never a clean, straight line. <laughs> no? It goes up and down, kind of like your bank account. No, it just, it, like, it always is different, right? Sometimes we are like on this upward path with the Lord and we're like, man, I am ascending into the heavens. I am walking with God. And the next week you're like, God is gone. I am distant. I am in the depths. I am in a fish. I am in Sheol. I am alone. <laughs> but you're not. Anyway. The Christian uh, growth pattern is never a clean, straight line. It's up and down and it's sideways. But so often we love to pretend like it's a total clean line, isn't it? We come in here all smiley and like, God is good, brother. <laughs> and this morning in my four-hour devotion time, through Zephaniah, God spoke to me a word, and I have not sinned since 1997 or whatever. <laughs> and we all pretend like we're just totally fine. And, we're, and someone's like, man, I'm really struggling. And you're like, struggling? <laughs> what is it to struggle? Oh my, you must be really in sin. I never struggle. It's the stupidest thing I ever heard. If you don't realize that your pastors, your leaders, your, your brothers and sisters in Christ, we are all growing at different rates and we are all at times struggling. You are deceived by the devil. And he's gonna use that deception to tell you you are less of a Christian. Nay, even are you a Christian? Because if you're really a Christian, you shouldn't be struggling. You should be perfect. Has God ever said that? Has he ever said, the moment you get saved, you better be perfect. 
And if you're not, you're out of here. No, I've never done that. God is committed in the process and patient in the process. God is committed to your good. God is committed even when you're in sin. God is committed because that's who he is. It's a love contract. It's a, it's a love covenant. It's not going to stop based upon your performance. So, so if you're struggling in sin or you're struggling in some area of your life, know that God provides the strength and what you need and even the grace to get through it and to conquer it and to beat it. Sometimes it takes years. Sometimes it takes months. Sometimes it takes a lifetime. But it is a process in which all of us go through and know that you do not go through it alone. And to come into church and think no one else is struggling, you are deceived. You are. We all struggle. We all should be struggling. If you're not struggling, then you're not alive. If you're not fighting against sin, then you're not alive. If you're rolling over to it and just like committing it like it's no big deal and there's no conviction, you're not alive to God. But if you're struggling and you're battling, understand, Christian, that is the walk. That is what we're doing. We are fighting the good fight, the Bible says. The imagery that the, that the word of God uses to, to describe the walk with God that we have. He talks about a wrestling match, a fight. He talks about farming, which is really hard, apparently. He talks about, like, we are more than conquerors, warriors. I mean, he's trying to use every image possible at his disposal. He says there's even armor that you need to wear and put on. So if you're not struggling, then what are you? You're a dead fish just flowing down the stream. So tonight, if you are struggling, you are in a great place. Keep fighting. Keep fighting. And don't be deceived that no one else is struggling and everyone's got it together and everyone looks so, so per perfect and wonderful and everyone had, you know, whatever. Stop it. You run your race with Jesus and everyone else alongside of you is going to cheer you on as you run. That's what we're here for. So don't let the devil trick you into thinking that you are not in this race and that you're not a Christian if you're struggling. So I forgot where I was. God's patient. So it's <laughs> our Christian walk is up and down, man, sideways. It's a, it's a process that we go through. But we come to this part where there's like a plant, a worm, and wind. And I spent, I want to say, 90% of my day trying to figure out how these spiritually connect to something. Like, what is the plant? What is the worm? And what is the wind? Are you guys ready? Write this down. The plant is simply this. It is a plant. <laughs> the worm is a worm. The wind is a wind. I got nothing. So that's what I learned today. But what we do see is that God's patience, God's also still kind to Jonah. There's Jonah sitting up on this hill. He makes himself a little lean-to, and he's like, now I have a doomsday shelter. And I'm just going to sit here, and now that I throw this huge fit, God's going to do what I want him to do. God's just going to, he's going to do it now, because my opinion matters that much. And as he's sitting there, God causes this plant to grow up over his head to shade him while he sits there and sulks in his own self-righteousness. Isn't that rad? Just sitting there sulking, like, mm, and God's like, you know what? You look hot. 
Let me just shade you for a second. And he was very thankful. Look what it says. It was very thankful, very grateful for the plant. Thank you, God. While I sit here and sulk. But God also then prepared a worm. And that worm comes and eats that plant. And it damages it so much that a thing withers and dies. And Jonah's like, here we go again. God, you're the worst. <laughs> but not only is there no more shade, God sends a hot wind from the east. You think about Iran and Iraq, like right where they are. You imagine that wind coming across the desert and hitting you. It's like when we have Santa Ana's and we all just die. And we don't even think about the people in the desert who live in that all the time. We're like, how can they do this? Oh my gosh, it's Santa Ana's. <laughs> like everything catches on fire. Um, anyway, that time's like 27. And Jonah is just getting fried. So he's had, his, he's had all the hair on his body burned off by this fish. <laughs> he was half digested. Things are starting to grow back. So he's like, okay, all right, cool. Things are looking good. And now he's sitting in the desert frying to death. And he's like, come on. Did Jonah deserve shade from the plant? No. But God is a blessing God. God blesses him. He shaded him anyway. But as it dies and the wind kicks up, again, he asked him, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It says here that Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And then he wished death for himself and says, it is better for me to die than to live. Now, this is when God begins to speak. Verse 9. And God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he says, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. How dramatic. Isn't that awesome? Is it right? Even to death, God, it is right for me to be angry. Anyway, I love drama. But the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made to grow, which came up at night and perished in the night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock. And the book just ends. This is the greatest cliffhanger next to the book of Acts ever. We don't know what Jonah says. We don't know his response. All we have are these words from the Lord. But it's as if God puts things on a scale in front of Jonah and he asks him, which is more valuable? He's like, You've had, you had pity on this plant, and there's 120,000 people over here who do not understand which is right and which is left. Now, Zach made the point last week that some commentators believe if, a, if someone doesn't know their right hand from their left, how old do you think they are? Probably young, right? Children. So is God making the point that there's 120,000 kids, children, innocent children, that are growing up in a society like this that they don't know anything different and he says, you have pity on a plant, but not these people? Jonah, there's something wrong with you. There's something very wrong in your heart. And the same mercy that you desired for yourself, that was undeserved, it was un you, you did not deserve it, I poured it out on you because you believe that you were savable and worthy of it. And he says, these people, he makes the point about the plant. Look what he says, you did not labor for it, nor did you make it grow. And he compares that to people. God says, I know every person in that city. I know everything about them. I know the hairs on their head. 
I know their names. I know their families. I am invested. I gave life to every person in that city. I am so much more invested in this city than you ever were. So should I not, their creator, have pity on them and mercy on them? So often, guys, we forget that every person is a created being by God. That the very life that they have, the very breath in their lungs is a gift from God, is a common grace by God. Notice he said, you didn't labor for it. God made it. God had also given life to every soul that lived in that, that city. I made them, I know them, I love them, and my heart breaks for them. Jonah, that heart of anger and that heart of bitterness and that heart that you have, that self-righteousness has become such a diseased root system in your heart. It has to be pulled up. And what this book ultimately teaches us is that God is a gracious and merciful God who is sovereign with his grace, who is sovereign with his mercy. None of us deserve it. None of us have ever deserved anything that God has given to us. The same wickedness that they were involved in, the Bible says we too have that same wickedness upon us. The Gospel of John tells us, have you ever hated anyone in your heart? Jesus said it's as if you've killed them already. Just because it hasn't come from your, your own hands, murder originates within the heart. That's where it begins. It begins with hate. He says adultery begins within the heart. It begins within the mind. That's where it starts. Just because you haven't committed it doesn't mean that it hasn't already happened in your heart and in your head. The same wickedness that would send them to hell is the same wickedness in our heart that would send us to hell. But God has been gracious to us. He sent his son who died for those sins. And by faith, you now enter into a loving relationship with that God. And so our heart, like God's heart, should break for those who do not know him. And our heart, for those who do not know him, should be a heart of mercy and compassion. And what they know of God, hopefully they see in us. They see the love of God in us. They see the mercy of God in us. They see the compassion of God in us. Because you're an image bearer of God. That's what God has placed us on this earth to do and has left us here until he comes again is to image him rightly within the world that we live in. But thankfully, he doesn't ask us to do that like by ourselves. He's not like, just do it, Nike. He says, I will give you my spirit who will dwell within you, who will give you the power and the strength to do it. So that is the book of Jonah. Hope you guys had fun. It's not about the fish, is it? We talked about it like twice. It's much more, much more crazy than, than I thought, too. Let's pray, and we'll close in worship tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for your word, and, and Lord, we do pray that the themes of this book, Lord, the things that it, it teaches us, Lord, how it, it, turns, it turns into a mirror that ultimately, Lord, just... It reveals our own heart. God, if the, like the, the psalmist said, search my heart. Is there any wicked way in me? If there is, God, pull it up from the roots. Make me more like you. Um, and so, Lord, we pray that tonight. We thank you for your word and how, God, you're so patient and kind with us, Lord. You allow us, Lord, there's room within our life where we make mistakes. And 
God, you pour out grace and mercy. God, we experience consequences as well. There's things in our life right now that we're experiencing because of the consequences of our own sin. But God, thank you that we ultimately will not experience the full weight of those consequences in hell forever separated from you because of Jesus Christ. So Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace. And uh, Lord, as we praise and worship you, we ask that you'd fill us again with your Holy Spirit, that we might rightly image you in this world that we live in. We love you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.